Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Tuesday, September 9th, 2014. From Slate.com, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm standing outside on a dock in New Paltz, New York. I'm at the beautiful Mohunk Manor. This is where we at Slate have had our retreat for the last couple days, enjoying and absorbing nature and some other things, but mostly nature. So right now I'm here with a Slate staffer. Everyone from Slate was here, and this is Ben Murin. Ben does a lot of things for Slate. Two things that he doesn't do for Slate, although we always uh, you know, ask him to do this, because how could you not when I tell you that? He's one of the world's best beatboxers, my opinion. Go ahead. Give me a little of that. <laughs> I'm going to watch you. But here at the retreat, I've asked Ben to come and help identify a species of bird. I have in my pocket a species of bird. It's actually a little toy stuffed bird. And so what I'm really asking Ben to do is to see if this bird call accurately comports with uh, what the real bird sounds like. Now, Ben, if you could turn around, so I don't, wanna, I don't want you to see what the plush version of the bird looks like. Maybe that would give you a clue. And if you heard this sound, Ben, what species would you say you were listening to? Uh, I would say peregrine falcon. And the answer is, please turn around. Please look at the plumage. Please read the label. It is the... Peregrine falcon. All right, great. They nailed it. They nailed the stuffed bird here at Mohong. Now, the reason I was thinking about birds other than nature is there's a new report out today by the National Audubon Society, and it talks about the bird population of North America being pretty much cut in half by climate change. And some of the species that will really uh, take it on the beak are the uh, the Baird's sparrow. That population will narrow. Climate change will be a wrecker for the three-toed woodpecker. The common loon leaving soon. The Baltimore Oriole eliminated from playoff contention. But it's not all sad. I mean, this is terrible. You can't joke about it, although I can. The morning dove, Ben. The morning dove, for some reason, the morning dove is going to flourish. I don't know if it's more adaptable or why that is. Brown pelican, not so much. It's sad, right? Well, the brown pelican has been uh, historically endangered, and now it's sort of making a comeback. But yet, it is a pretty sensitive species, specifically because it's, you know, it's it's an oceanic species with a lot of climate elements that can change its habitat and its feeding patterns. The morning dove is definitely more adaptable. Um, I mean, you can see it in the city, even where I live in Brooklyn, you know, you can hear them calling uh, in the morning. But I'm, I'm very sad to hear this news. This is the first time even hearing of it. Um, yeah. So it's... And I broke it to you in almost pun and joke form, and you want to punch me now, don't you? <laughs> a little bit. It's a kind of an emotional experience. I don't know how to feel, because I love the jokes, but I hate the news. So. Yep. That's pretty much the gist right there. That's the gist. <laughs> love the jokes, hate the news. So speaking of, uh, well, kind of a joke and kind of uh, something to love to hate, our entire show today is going to be around one theme, the greatest monster, the 20th century, Adolf Hitler. You will hear me make a reference 
reference to today, the today was of a couple months ago because the interview originally aired a couple months ago or whatever version podcasted, podcasted a couple of months ago. But don't worry, it'll end on a, on a high note. Thanks for listening. A hundred years ago yesterday, the German Empire declared war on France. A hundred years ago today, England declared war on Germany. This began what would be called World War I. The results of the Great War, 38 million killed, wounded, or missing in action. Europe realigned. And one wounded German corporal, laying in the Bilitz Sanitarium, which was being used to house the generally wounded, for him, the seeds of an even more horrible slaughter were planted. Adolf Hitler was many things. He was a defiant son, a failed artist, a bitter veteran. Who he was is the subject of Ron Rosenbaum's Explaining Hitler, the search for origins of his evil. This is a new edition. It's about 15 years after Ron first wrote the book, and Ron's here right now. Thanks for coming in. How are you, Mike? I'm well. So the title before in 98, you couldn't have known and you couldn't have put in the book what the reaction to the title would be. Such goes the space-time continuum. But people didn't understand it, even though the subtitle is pretty clear that you're not really giving an explanation. You're talking about the people who seek to give an explanation. Yeah, I... I don't think a lot of people, at least certainly once they read Explaining Hitler, thought that it was my explanation of Hitler because every chapter is sort of a dissection of someone else's attempted hubristic uh, explanation of Hitler. It's always a risk in attempting irony, I've realized, in uh, book titles. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't even know if it's ironic or if the people who got so up in arms about it, and some with great credentials, like the director... Landsman, who did Shoah, who seemed not to like you or the title or the picture of a baby Hitler that's on the cover of the book. Well, that was one of the great sort of showdowns in the book in uh, Landsman's Parisian flat. And it was written up, actually, uh, by Figaro magazine mm-hmm. under the title Le Fair Rosenbaum. And it was not actually the kind of Parisian affair I had imagined. <laughs> Lonsman, ha- who was the director of Shoah, you know, likes to lay down commandments for people. And one of his commandments is that thou shalt not ask why about Hitler. Because once you ask why, once you seek for explanations, explanations turn into exculpations, excuses. And then ultimately, if you go down that road further, you get to uh, to understand all is to forgive all, which is, uh, in, in a way, impermissible. So when I was in his Parisian flat, when he was denouncing explanation, he said, I mean, there is even a baby picture of Hitler, aghast at the idea, because the baby picture asks the question, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from this innocent-looking infant to the genocidal monster? And of course... I put the baby picture on the cover of my book. But when you look at this picture, especially if you have kids and you think about this, this is an innocent, you know, he's not a monster there. 
it's so much more powerful than every other book that comes out with a swastika on the cover. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Explaining Hitler was translated into 12 languages or so. What I found was that almost without exception, the foreign publishers would refuse to put the baby picture on the cover. Instead, they'd have a uh, swastika armband wearing Hitler, shaking his fist, doing the salute, military uniform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is scary because it suggests that any human baby has the potential to turn into Hitler. I don't believe that's true, but it's a... uh, a scary suggestion. Or even if it doesn't suggest, but we could prove that just one did, that itself makes you question some things about humanity. That's, I, yeah. I, I think that's very true. The, that one did tells us a lot. You know, you get into an argument about will there be a second Holocaust? The fact that there was a first. Yeah says something important. And the fact of his life that when you read, say, biographies of serial killers, and in some cases the upbringings were just so horrendous and the beatings and the abuse, and you say to yourself, how could anyone have a chance with this? Hitler doesn't seem to have been brought up uh, so horribly. In fact, if you compare him to others who were born in his town of his generation, doesn't seem too much better, but doesn't seem too much worse. Exactly. I mean, uh, psychoanalysts have made way too much of uh, dubious evidence about his childhood. Uh, Alice Miller claims that the father was mean to him, while Eric Fromm says the mother was a malignant narcissist who overprotected him. So was it the father? Was it the mother? Neither of them has any decent evidence for him. And also, how many uh, overprotective mothers and mean fathers are in their world? And yet there was only one Adolf Hitler. And I think if there is one common way of getting Hitler wrong, it's not one explanation. It's not something having to do with syphilis in the trenches of World War One, or or something that happened to his penis. I mean, all these things are put forward. It's to think that because this was this one singular monster, that there must be one singular explanation. Explanation is, in a way, a consolation for people. They don't want to leave this open. They want to find, oh, Hitler, okay, we got that nailed down. The big division in the uh, explanation industry is between those who believe that uh, Hitler was created by great abstractions, mm-hmm. by uh, either uh, psychoanalytic factors, by the late capitalism, by uh, scientific German uh, racism, and the idea being that, you know, Hitler was not responsible himself. He was a puppet, a pawn, a sock puppet for all these larger forces. And so... It takes us away from looking at Hitler himself and from the fact that Hitler made the choice to do what he did by himself despite all these factors, not just because of them. But I've always wondered, do you think that there were one or two people and but for those associations, maybe Hitler wouldn't have been Hitler? It goes to... For instance, what was the source of Hitler's anti-Semitism? There's still a big open question. There's the Vienna School that said that he read these pornographic anti-Semitic magazines in Vienna when he was a youth there, and that was it. And yet some people say no, uh, Liebenthal's, who claimed that he saw Hitler browsing in his porno shop, was making it up after the fact to uh, aggrandize himself. 
you know, you come to 1919 when Hitler's mustered out of the uh, the sanitarium, out of the army, and he comes back to uh, Germany. You know, the gap between what seems to be an insignificant Corporal Hitler, within a year or so, he's these, this incredibly charismatic, fire-breathing street or- orator who builds the Nazi party from uh, 50 members to thousands, and then it begins multiplying and multiplying. You know, it's that gap, I call it an abyss, actually, that no one has really been able to, uh, uh, to give us a rational explanation for. So what are the reasonable ways where we could look at the lesson of Hitler and say, yeah, he's not sui generis, we should worry about that sort of thing I don't think we need Hitler to warn us against totalitarianism. I think ever since Julius Caesar, uh, we know those lessons. We don't always take them seriously. The one lesson that we can learn from Hitler and from no one else is that when someone announces his, his intention to exterminate an entire race, that we should shouldn't brush it off as mere braggadocio or self-aggrandizement. We should maybe take it seriously because someone did and someone succeeded in doing it. I mean, one of the points I make in the afterword in the new edition is that, you know, there are a lot, a lot of theories about why Hitler lost the war and he lost the war militarily. But there was a war that Hitler won, and that was the war against the Jews, and he won that six million to one. Some historians, I mean, I, I draw on uh, the work of Richard Evans, Sir Richard Evans now, uh, who claim that one reason Hitler lost the war was that he was so obsessed with the racial war, with extermination that uh, he made moves that hurt him militarily. From everything I've read, he was very hands-on when it came to the, uh, when it came to exterminating the Jews in the final solution, and he had his ideas about how to win on the battlefield proved to be not successful ideas, where his ideas about how to exterminate proved to be horribly successful. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, book that contains conversations taped secretly of the uh, German generals imprisoned after the war. Some of them sort of let down their hair and say, how could we be so stupid? His plans were idiocy. And yet he had one plan that he gave priority to more than any other. And one could argue from his point of view, the Holocaust was a success. Yeah. You know, on this show we had, it was a comic essay that worked And it was done from the perspective of the guy who did kill Hitler coming back and explaining, you guys don't know who this dude Hitler was, but he was bad. Trust me. I read that. (laughs) I I liked it. What's what's the story with this peaceful germination that invented a kind of yogurt that cured diabetes? (laughs) It's funny that no one has really taken this tack before because the idea, hey, what if you kill Hitler? Will the Holocaust still happen? Will the war still happen? What will change? What won't change? It's, It's the biggest hypothetical in time travel without Hitler. Is there a Holocaust? You know, I studied Hitler's inner circle, um, and there were vicious anti-Semites like Goebbels and Heydrich. It's possible that certain fanatic Nazis might have done this, but my feeling is that a lot of them wanted to express uh, and elaborate upon this fanatic Jew hatred 
to earn points with Hitler mm-hmm. as much as from uh, personal conviction. I mean, Goebbels was a poet and failed novelist. Heydrich was someone who suffered from the fact that he, uh, there were rumors that his father was a Jew, and you could find all sorts of uh, psychological explanations for that. But certainly we know Hitler's central drive was for extermination. Some believe it was one that he conceived as far back as November uh, 1918 when he woke up in the sanitarium and discovered that Germany had surrendered and felt that the Jews were responsible and vowed that he would avenge them. There are others who place it at other points, but certainly I would be hard-pressed to think of a scenario in which lacking Hitler's all-encompassing drive it would have happened. But was it the case that there were somewhere anything near plans that people could point to that others had conceptualized actually rounding up and killing Jews as opposed to we hate them. It would be great if Jews didn't exist or if Jews were, quote, wiped off the face of the earth, the actual means, the trains, the the gas chambers. Were these ideas that were out there before Hitler? I would say one of my most significant investigative accomplishments was when I found the archives of the chief anti-Hitler newspaper in Munich uh, during the 20s when Hitler was on the rise in Munich, uh, the Munich Post. They were the socialist newspaper. I found their crumbling archives in the basement of a, a museum. Going through them, I came upon this amazing story September 9th, 1931, in which their investigative reporters had come upon a secret Nazi plan for the disposition of Jews that used the word and lawsong, meaning final solution, for, as far as we know, the first time. So there were plans. I certainly would say Hitler was uh, part of it, but uh, it had been discussed. And of course, Hitler had spoken of gassing the Jews as far back, I believe, as 1921, as uh, reported by one of his comrades. So it wasn't new. That was his secret ambition, and he would use anti-Semitism opportunistically, uh, play it down when uh, he thought he wanted to make alliances, play it up when he thought it would be useful. In between the original publication of this book in the late 90s and uh, today... What did you change your mind about? I think I felt that the rise of Holocaust denial the really surprised me. It was almost astonishing because I think it's a kind of a new level of evil. It not only accepts the fact that the Holocaust happened. I mean, if you listen to the Holocaust deniers in private, as some of their uh, people who have resigned from yeah, the movement would right. say, you know, they're happy it happened, but they want to twist the knives in the soul's of the dead. So what surprised me, I guess, was the depths of human nature I didn't think were possible in a way or could be adopted by so many. Ron Rosenbaum is the author of Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of His Evil. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it. 
this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST at checkout. Squarespace is simple and easy. It includes beautiful design. There's drag and drop content. Now, for a second, I want to go to beautiful design. Beautiful design means that their tools, the way you actually construct your website on Squarespace is in and of itself beautiful and it will yield a beautiful result. And this is not always the case. I mean, you ever see the chisel that Michelangelo used to make David? It's an ugly chisel. So it's not always the case that the tools themselves are good looking if the product is good looking. In Squarespace's case, it is. Like, let's think about palettes, you know, where they mix the paint. Like, are the palettes good to look at? Can you go to a museum of palettes? In fact, a little bit of an aside here. I think that would be interesting, right? Like, that would be a cool match the palette. We get real artist palettes that they actually use to make the art and match the palette to the actual art. You could design that website. Oh my God, I'm giving you this one for free, right? You have great works of art, public domain only, please. And then you match it with specific palettes. There you go. You can take that one. Go, go for it. So how it works is go to Squarespace, use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That means you're showing support for the GIST. Squarespace is showing support for the GIST. So we want to thank them for that. And I also want to say Squarespace, better web starts with your website. And now the spiel. Today, I am bequeathing my spiel. I am giving it over to a good cause. I said in the beginning that my spiel could take many forms, although most of the time it's been, you know, spieling about things. But now, let's hear from an outside party. These words are from Drew Johnston. He wrote them for an online publication called The Occasional. How often does The Occasional come out? The word that comes to mind is intermittently, maybe even sporadically. The piece in question is titled, I think I should get more credit for killing Hitler. If the gist were a different kind of show, whose audience needed a little hand-holding through the confusing parts, I might say, and now, I think I should get a little more credit for killing Hitler, in which author Drew Johnston writes from the perspective of a man who killed Hitler, keeping in mind how the essay would go if someone really had killed Hitler. But over the last 10 weeks, I have driven away the audience that is easily confused, or even reasonably confused, who doesn't thrill to following the verbal curly cues of me, your humble host. So now, the spiel presents Drew Johnston and I think I should get more credit for killing Hitler. I think I should get more credit for killing Hitler. And I know you're thinking, who's Hitler? I've never heard of a guy named Hitler. But the only reason you're saying that is because I went back in time and killed him. If I hadn't built that time machine and gone back to kill Hitler, you'd all be saying to yourselves, man, I wish I had a time machine so I could kill Hitler. In fact, growing up, that was such a common sentiment, it never dawned on me no one would know who he was when I returned. So I took out this ad in the Times to help explain why everyone owes me. I'm not looking to be a hero, but a thank you would be nice. First, who is Hitler? It's a good question. Hitler was the dictator of Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. He started World War II, he took over most of Europe, and most horrifically, he was responsible for the Holocaust, where he systematically slaughtered over six million Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals. Sounds like someone you'd want to get in a time machine and kill? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. But wait a minute, you're thinking, Germany? That peaceful country that created the magical yogurt that cures diabetes? No one from Germany would do that. Yes, they would. In fact, you wouldn't know about Der Jagarten, Nine Diabetes? 
because it would not exist. Because I Killed Hitler, Germany spent the 1930s and 40s developing that yogurt instead of committing mass genocide. Now, did I create that yogurt? No. That would be taking credit away from those brilliant Jewish, gypsy, and homosexual scientists. But am I indirectly responsible? Yes, I am. But what about World War II? I've never heard of that. Okay, well, remember the Everybody Gang Up on Italy War? Instead of that, we had World War II. It was basically the Everybody Gang Up on Italy War, except a lot of our effort was focused on fighting Germany, and instead of lasting two weeks, it lasted six years. It was really bad. Like, so bad, we actually renamed the Great War just so we could put into perspective how bad it was. We retroactively named the worst war the world's ever seen World War I because this war was so much worse, we had to make it a sequel. And, again, all I'm looking for is a thank you. You want more? Fine. The award-winning video games Call of Diplomacy, Call of Diplomacy 2, and Call of Diplomacy Ghosts? Those were all me. Michael Jordan's mustache? I'm the reason it's cool and not insane. Our moon colony? Honestly, I can't figure out exactly how I'm responsible for that one, but it has to be me because it certainly wasn't there before. And before you ask, no, I can't make another time machine. The original one burned up on the return trip, and it relied on car parts found exclusively in Volkswagens, something you've never heard about. Plus, if we're being completely honest, there's no point in making another one. I've already done the one thing you'd want to use a time machine for, and it hasn't exactly been a boon for my social life. Just a little credit. That's all I'm asking for. I don't need a statue or a plaque. I mean, sure, some sort of medal or presidential recognition would be great, but honestly, I'd settle for the people I meet in the street looking me in the eyes and saying thank you instead of why are you telling me about how you went back in time to kill a child? Thank you, Drew Johnston. Thank you for that essay. And I think it is high time. We all thank you for killing Hitler. And you know, now that the baby name Adolf has surpassed Mason and Jacob and trails only Noah and Liam on the list of popular baby names, it's a fun exercise to wonder, what if you hadn't killed Hitler? Also of note on that list, the growing popularity of the boy's name Kermit. Funnily enough, Drew's brother is named Kermit Johnston, and he is author of the essay, You Might Really Dislike Me If You Understood the Implications of the Fact That I Killed Jim Henson. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, who sports a cute bob haircut, is both the producer of Slate Podcasts and killed Peggy Fleming. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but you might remember him from either his chart-topping single, American Pie, or his essay, I Got Don McLean Remanded to a Jordanian Prison Before He Could Develop an Interest in Music. You could subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review. You could listen to us on SoundCloud. You can sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. You can go to facebook.com slash slate gist or email the gist at slate.com. I do want to thank you all for listening to this Zoomcast and for downloading on Nook, my gripping story. I hooked a young Steve Jobs on airplane glue before he could amount to anything. And sincerely, thank you for listening.